In this episode, we're going to discuss one of the most important things that is often overlooked by investors, but front of mind with owner-occupiers. Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Many property buyers look to data to help them make decisions, and this can be really useful, but what data is important and what is just noise? Today, we're going to talk about what data doesn't tell us, and if we don't learn this stuff, we're doomed to make big mistakes. Before we get to that, what on earth is the house behind you today, Megan? I am shouldering the entire property market. I just realised as I looked up... You're wearing the weight of the whole market on your shoulders. <laughs> it's, it's not a house, obviously. This is not built. But, you know, we're talking about data and we're talking about putting yourself on a, out on a cliff. If a you ledge even. <laughs> yeah, on a ledge. Hanging yourself on a ledge. If you don't take all the factors into account. And I'm, I, I love this one because this is something that you and I are both really passionate about. Um, and it's that you just cannot buy property off a spreadsheet mm. or off the internet. There are so many more aspects that we need to go into. So let's get stuck into it. Yeah. Most thing, people think they've got to find the next hotspot or highest yield, and that's what makes a good place to invest. But it's actually choosing a location with great investment fundamentals that's really important. So making decisions based on the numbers is a really limiting way to choose a location. We actually need to look for places where people want to live and properties they want to live in, Veronica. <laughs> this is what really cracks me up. I mean, owner-occupiers, let's face it, and I was watching a, an episode, I think it was on 7.30 Report the other night, and there was a first home buyer there who had just moved in, and they were saying how when the property market's going up and they're a first home buyer and they haven't bought yet, they're freaking out and they want it to stop. The minute they've bought a property, they're like, oh, I want to keep going. Quick, go, keep going, keep going, <laughs> drive those prices up. Yeah, you are, change your mindset completely. Yeah, yeah, now that I'm in the market. And, and this is something that it's not, you know, we're talking here sort of almost from an investor point of view, but it's, it, it definitely is something that a lot of first-time buyers think as well. It's like, I've got to get in the market in a way that's actually immediately mm. going to make money. And like, let's face it, that's fantastic. And, you know, if that does happen, and certainly in a rising market, it can happen. 
Um, but there's so many factors that go into whether sustainably over time you're going to buy yourself a property that actually does go up in value or mm. not or mm. a lot or a little mm. or those sorts and of how, things. And for how long and how long you go? I mean, the numbers do paint a sort of part of the picture of what people have done. It's kind of a rear view, rear view measure. Rear view mirror. Thank you very much. <laughs> but what we also need to understand is that why you know why they've done those things it's the mm. human aspect it's the behavioral aspects that will give us a clue as to what people will do and what they'll want in the future and you cannot find that on a spreadsheet you can't and and the thing is too is that when you're looking at data like you're saying it's all stuff that's happened in the past and it's to mm. some degree that can give us some clues as to what might happen in the future but like you're saying it, it, if you don't understand what uh, what caused the numbers that appeared mm. on the page. You yeah. know, if you don't actually get into that, then you are doomed to make big mistakes because you are basically basing all your decisions on those numbers. And, and I guess where it becomes very dangerous is when people are looking, you know, and the media love this, let's face it, they love to get put out ten, top 10 suburbs where median growth has median been really house hot, price growth, right? yeah. <laughs> and then buyers think, I've got to buy there. And it's like, well, for starters, it's past tense, so you've already missed the boat if it really was, you know, that great a place to buy. Mm -hmm. But also the median itself is a real problem as an indicator. And let me just explain why I say that. The median price is basically the midpoint of, of a. If you if you basically looked at a suburb and said, right, you're gonna you're gonna layer, you know, rank them from most expensive right down to cheapest of every single sale in the last say twelve months, and you pick the middle one, which means that fifty percent of the properties that sold above that are above the median, and fifty percent that sold below it are below the medians. It's the literally. This is not a regular bell curve, right? And I'm, <laughs> and this is the thing that we've been talking about. We want people to understand. If you're a statistician or a you know a Numbers bloke or woman, the median is not the top of the bell curve. It, it it's not that number. It could be skewed in either direction. Yeah, and what people because let's face it, you know, I remember doing statistics at university, and you know what, I almost oh, failed so them. Do I. Yeah, I almost failed. <laughs> Ten letter swear word. It was. <laughs> <laughs> trying to wrap my brain around it. And it's quite amazing as I get older, I, I see statistics in use. You know what I mean? When you yeah. when I look at property and I get it now, but at uni it was all theoretical and I just could not wrap my brain around it. And But most of us don't understand, you know, a lot of people don't even understand what a median price is. So by understanding what goes into the makeup, what's in that list of properties that's, you know, stacked from most expensive to cheapest. And since some suburbs, you've got this, wide diversity of property type you've got like like Balmain I'll give the example of you know where my office is mm. you've got in houses you've got tiny little workers cottage at one end in the middle you've got sort of some unrenovated and renovated and then right at the other end you've got harbour front properties on 800 square meters mm. so the tiny mm. little workers cottage could be on 80 square meters and the harbour front could be a mansion on 800 square meters and all of that, those go into the median for that suburb. So how if the median for Balmain happens to be like, I don't know, $3 million, for instance, and you've got big properties that could be selling for 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 million, and you've got workers' cottages selling for under 2 million, how on earth is looking at the median going to help you in any way? Yeah, and absolutely. And, and Brisbane's a similar thing because there are so many properties that actually flood. Now, not 
not whole suburbs, not whole streets, but individual properties that flood. So when you look at a sale price in an area that has a median house price of let's let's call it you know $950,000, um, there are properties that may have sold in the $600,000 range to $700,000 range and quite a lot of them because they're the flood-affected ones. Yeah. And that's the B grade, C grade that you don't want to be touching, but that can affect the the median. So, you know, it, composition is so important and, and you know, oh, God, I just gloss over when I think about statistics. But, <laughs> but, but now you see the danger. It's important <laughs> how to interpret them and what they really mean. I remember the very first um, article that I was asked to comment in in 2004 in the Courier-Mail, I was asked to write a commentary piece and, and, and I, I, the one that I wrote was lies, damn lies and statistics because it is so, you know, you could use a, a, a statistical analysis or a piece of information. The media does this extremely well to support whatever argument you actually want to make. There's actually a book and Kent Lardner, who anyone who's um, been, or anyone who did our Where to Buy for Investors workshop will know Kent. He's uh, the author of Suburb Trends website. And we, I interview him quite regularly on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Kent actually gave gave me the name of this book called How to Lie with Statistics. And I am, <laughs> I started reading it. It was written in 1954. He said when he was at university, he actually read this book. And it is all about that, how you can, how you can, just Pick and choose them. little bits. And so mm-hmm. this is this is the danger in grabbing on little bits of these yeah. pieces of data and trying to construct a whole picture of an area um, with one little tiny piece of information, which in itself needs to be understood and interpreted. So that's why we say that's the danger with median prices. And also, you know, one of the things that Kent actually introduced to me years ago when and the Price Finder website, which is one of those databases that professionals use in, in the property industry, was this price segmentation tool. And that is like it is a bar chart and it shows in different price brackets the amount of property or the proportion of properties in, in any given suburb that are sold in each different price bracket. So you can see that some, it's like two price brackets and that's it. Nothing sells outside of them. Well, we, we did that exercise last night, didn't we? Well, you know, this is actually going to air a lot further down the track than last <laughs> night. But we when we ran the Where to Buy Investor West workshop, um, we looked at a few different suburbs, just random suburbs. <laughs> and one of the suburbs only had two price bars in it. Now, if you've you've ever looked at a distribution of prices in a suburb, you'll understand that that is incredibly tight. So normally you have some outliers and then there's a bit of a, a an upswing in the middle, maybe some ups and downs in the different price ranges. But this particular suburb that we did only had two price bars, which is was I've never seen it before. It was was quite interesting actually. Well, when I see I go digging in this sort of stuff just for fun, right? And Quite often you'll see that in, in more of the newer subdivisions where all the homes are, say, or they're all big four-bedroom family homes on similar blocks of land. So they're all really similar. They're very homogenous. Whereas, mm. you know, coming back to Balmain as an example, you've got the tiny homes right up to the massive homes, so they're not homogenous. So it's much easier to price property in areas where the properties are all the same. Yes. Um, oh, good point. Yeah. Actually, there's a piece of gold for everybody. If, if there's a, <laughs> <laughs> looking, looking at that price di- distribution, it's easier to price it and you're not going to get it too far wrong but you know big chance that you'll get it quite quite wrong if you um if you don't really have it on, not on your game and understand the differences in um, markets that are really diverse 
There's also the problem that if there's not a lot of diversity in the market, then there's not a lot of churn. So people, mm. there's no entry-level property. Everyone sort of pays the same amount of money. Everyone's got about the same amount of debt, you know, and and there's no expensive properties. There's no aspirational um, activity in the, in the market because there's nothing, there's no way to upgrade to within the same suburb, you know. Mm. So it doesn't have those sort of drivers that actually keep the market bubbling along as well. So, they're you know, they're much more... Um, and also potentially they're next to new subdivisions and supply is really the enemy of, of growth as well. Mm. So then we have to sort of think of all of these things, but that's just something that an insight, lots of insights you can actually get from a really interesting piece of data, which is that price segmentation. I guess we'll put the um, the link to Suburb Trends website on in the show notes. And so oh, it's such an interesting one to play around with. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Free data. Free data that is, free is available. Data. Just be really careful how you use it. Yeah. Be, yeah, because, you know, you you can't go into a single piece of data or one piece of information without the bigger picture. And I guess that's what we're talking about, Veronica, mm-hmm. is that data is a really big part of kind of narrowing down from 13,691 suburbs in Australia <laughs> um, to the two, three, four, five that, that you might choose. And, and we as a business, you know, in our buyers agency business, there's 189 mainland suburbs in Brisbane. And we've spent a lot of time whittling that down to 58 suburbs that we buy in, and then only certain property types in certain price ranges within those suburbs. So, it's a big process p- for people to go through if they haven't already narrowed down the location they're looking at. But I guess the point that we're trying to get to here is that data is one part. Yeah. The there's also, there's the commonly used data like the medians. We've, we've gone out on ad nauseum about that, won't go on about that. But then there's also not commonly used data that's actually really useful and should be looked at, but but often isn't. And one of those is the approvals data. You know, I talked about scarcity being, you know, we always talk about scarcity being um, something to look for. And so if you're buying on the outskirts of any city, you've got to always be worried, oh, how many new subdivisions can go up, crop up next to me? Out there? Mm. Yeah. Or if you're buying an apartment even, how many new apartment buildings can go in, in at close by and compete with, with my apartment? So these are really important things to look at before you decide where to buy. Or, and for first-time buyers in particular, you know, let's face it, government grants will incentivise you to go and buy these new, in these new subdivisions and in, in new buildings. And so one really massively important thing is to go into the approval starter, and you can do that on Suburb Trends too, and actually look at how many units or, or houses or townhouses have actually been approved, approved in the suburb over the last, I think, 18 months or two years, it goes back. Mm. And you can see, wow, if they just approved 400 apartments like three months ago, well, they're going to get built soon. You know, and if two months before that they approved another seven hundred and so on, as we found in one suburb when we did that uh, <laughs> in the where to buy workshop. Yeah. You know, you go, okay, warning, let's just rule that out. This, you know, if you've got thirteen thousand six hundred suburbs in Australia, you can easily rule one out when they've got lots of supply coming. Yeah. And and that's that's approvals for new buildings and, and we would differentiate that from approvals for renovations to mm. existing buildings because that's a gentrification process and that can be quite positive for an area as opposed to an increase in density, which is new building approvals, which is not a positive for an area. Perfect that you even raise that because let's face it, that just shows the nuance in the data. If you just mm. rely on approvals and you rule out areas that are actually gentrifying, you just miss a golden opportunity. Opportunity. So that's actually a really good thing to point out. Mm, yep. Look, I think and not enough people look at a map, Veronica. You mm. know, we, we spend a lot of time physically on our feet going around and we know our areas really well because we're local area experts. We, we, we don't pretend to be 
um, experts in any area but where we buy property for people. And I guess that's what, you know, we, we really pride ourselves on is we're not borderless. We, we're actually local area experts. But when you're, when you're looking for an area and you're looking outside your backyard and you're looking for all the information that can give you guidance on what might work and what might not work, the mapping can be a good part of the process. Um, and we, we did quite a bit of this work in the in the Where to Buy workshop and, and it was around looking for some of those, you know, things that might give you a hint that something's changing, whether it might be looking at an area and you see a lot of industrial, line industrial warehouse type um, roof lines. Yeah. There, there's potential in some areas, particularly those close to the city, for those to be rezoned and potentially turn into high-rise unit complexes. And there are areas in Brisbane such as Woolloongabba, um, West End, where that has actually taken place. And, and those areas are quite oversupplied at the moment. So had you done an aerial over those kinds of areas and looked at those warehouse-type buildings maybe about 10 years ago, you might think that a house away from that would be good, but a unit in those areas might be a bit of a risk. Um, you know, one of the things that you're particularly fond of looking at is, is green space. Um, <laughs> not that there's a lot of green space around the areas that you buy in, but when we look at it from a, an investor point of view or from a, a first-time buyer point of view, if there is a lot of green space, you need to work out whether that is you know, reserve, you know, whether it's council reserve or it's national park or whatever the case may be. A mountain. And, and therefore, <laughs> a mountain. You can't really build very easily on mountains. <laughs> well, you, you can. Um, <laughs> There's not a lot of new subdivisions on mountains. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult. The bill costs are high and, you know, whatever the case may be. But, um, you know, the, but having a look at that and going, oh, okay, well, this is an outskirts suburb and could that be redeveloped into something that might increase um, or decrease scarcity, increase supply. Because remember, we're talking about the supply-demand equation. I guess we should say we're talking about satellite images here. We're, we're actually not talking about looking at the map map. It's the satellite map. Oh, we're not and- going back to the Refidex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to explain to my daughter how I found I found my way around when I was her age. You know, I just have to plan it out and carry this big bloody atlas with me, you know, nuts and, and write down the bus. You have to pull over the side of the road and go, oh, God, I oh, think yeah. I missed the turn off, you know. <laughs> we do, we do jest sometimes that we're old enough to be your mothers and there you go, there's another reason that there's we some evidence. <laughs> And yeah, for those of you who don't know, it was about, you know, Sydney, I think, was about that thick. Brisbane was about that thick. And it was literally just pages and pages of streets. Depend whether you had the Gregory's or the UBD. The Gregory's <laughs> was right. hardcover and thick and the, and the UBD was bigger and soft cover. <laughs> anyway, now another thing. Yeah, we do. On the, on the We talk about sort of national park and mountains, shall we say, or, or very steep hills or cliffs. Um the other natural boundaries that you'll see on a map are obviously rivers and, you know, waterways, generally mm-hmm. waterways, at coastal. You know, you, you can see when the, there's a geographic constraint to supply and uh, that's a good thing, you know. So you can see thing. Yeah. things to avoid on maps and things to, to actually um, specifically look for. Mm. Yep. And the distance from the CBD. The old commute. I know that right now we're in November 2021, towards the end of November, there's still a lot of work from home. There are a lot of people who have relocated to regional locations and are doing some commuting, you know, some not even going into work at the moment. But um, this may change and we need to be really cautious about this as a long-term strategy. And and, and it, I guess it's something that you and I want to put out there as don't hang your hat on 
people always working from home because there is a groundswell of people who are going, I want to go back to the workplace and I want to be part of a community and I do like the interaction that I get and I don't want to be working from home all the time. So there will be an element, I think, of flexibility in the workplace going forward. I don't necessarily think that this is a long-term um, everybody working from home all the time kind of solution and, and, and therefore the commute still will have relevance. Absolutely. And, and I think too, you know, I think I mentioned it and we're going to keep referring to last night because we just, it's fresh in our we minds, the, where, the yeah. where to buy for investors <laughs> workshop. But, you know, the pendulum has swung from one extreme, you know, where everyone wants to be close to the city and there's mm, huge value in that, mm. to the other extreme where it's like, yeehaw, let's get out of here. I don't have to be tied to my office or whatever anymore mm. and I can live in a, you know, seaside or treeside location, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there will be a bit of a U-turn from some people where the practicalities, even if they have to commute twice a week for a couple of hours, is, is really going to, you know, wear thin. Mm. But I think the other thing when you're looking at locations, when you look at maps, you know, and there's lots of tools you can work out the actual public transport commute from wherever a place is to to the CBD, where a majority of people work. But it's not just CBD for work. It's things like entertainment, restaurants, you know, there's there's other reasons why people would commute yeah. into centres, right? Yeah. Remember those days, you know, before? You know, when we went out together without yeah. masks and saw each other smiles. <laughs> All that, yeah. <laughs> so those things, you know, and there are pockets, and I know in our local area, there are pockets which we sort of call no man's land pockets. It's like, you know, there's a couple of bosses that go there, that's it. But if you just buy one kilo, Kilometer in any direction, you can actually be a lot closer to mm. another form of transport or a better bus run, or you know. And locals know that stuff, and it's the sort of thing that does make properties in some areas. You know, they make them a little bit more difficult to buy because the the commute is harder from those pockets of the suburb or those suburbs. Mm. And and mm. I know that you know when selling property in a flat. You know, going back to my sales days, you know, you, you dig. Oh no, I won't look there because it's too hard to get to work. Yeah, um, and, and different people have different expectations about commute time, Veronica, and we, we, we talk about this quite a lot, don't we, because uh, in Sydney um, it's not unusual for someone to spend an hour, an hour and a half commuting one way and the other. In Brisbane, that would just about undo people. So <laughs> the expectation, and regionally often people will say, well, 20 minutes in the car, God, I, don't, I don't know about uh, that. Um, so it's really important to understand the local nuances of what the expectations and, and desirability of commute times actually are and also what transport types are yeah. more desirable because there are some places where the car is just the natural way and there's enough parking and it might be a regional centre with, you know, good parking or whatever the case may be. Um, but then in ma- major capital cities, there's, you know, a, either a desire for, you know, Melbourne, tram is fantastic to be able to jump mm. on um, the the train, not so much the bus. In, in Brisbane, train is great. Bus network is actually stronger. Um, you know, we got rid of our trams a long time ago. A bit of a shame, really, because I think that would have. Well, we're getting bit. them all back again in Sydney. Although yeah. now, in one section, they're off the road for off the rails for eighteen months. Oh, yeah. Problems with the uh, the or the chassis or the brakes or something. The wheel arches. Um, <laughs> structural problems. Structural important <laughs> problems. Um, but it is interesting, though, in Sydney. So we have we have tr- heavy rail, light rail. Now we've got some other type of rail coming in that I can never remember the name of. We've got buses. We've got ferries. I've forgotten anything. Um, and there's a pecking order. You know, like in, in certain suburbs, you want to be 
close. In fact, Ferry, I think, has to trump everything. Let's oh, face yeah. it. It's the nicest is there a better way. way to go to work? No better way. Hmm. So, so Ferry is probably number one. Heavy rail is number two by far. It's convenient. It's, you know, it's fast. It's regular. Um, and then, then there's light rail, which is nice and pleasant. It's a bit like being on holidays, though, because actually it's sort of, it's, um, they're really regular. And hmm. when I say regular, when they're not broken. Um, but they're slow. You know, they're really yeah. slow. And mm. then there's the last one. Well, they're kind of interrupted by the traffic, aren't they? I don't know what it is about them. I think that because they're light rail and because I think yeah, people can easily walk in front of them, they're trans, mm. effectively. So trans, um, yeah, yeah. that I think they have to go slower for starters. I just think there's probably more danger, I'm guessing. But, you know, the bottom of the pecking order is bus. So if you're buying in an area where only buses go to and you mm. don't have those other three options, then the prices do tend to be a little less... Um, well, I guess there's a little less buyer enthusiasm about buying in those areas. And that mm. sort of leads into we're talking about behaviour of buyers, you know, and behaviour of owners and behaviour of renters, behaviour of people that live in an area. Because the thing is that you want to buy, whether you're buying to live in it or whether you're buying it as, in, as an investment, you want to be putting your money into an area where other people want to also put their money. Not where they want to escape mm. the minute things get better for them, mm. you know. And so this is a danger with a ripple effect. Um, when a market's hot and people get priced out of a certain area, they go to the next suburb. And that's fine if that suburb has all the fundamentals and all the ingredients to become as popular and as a nice place to live as the first suburb they couldn't afford in to, to live in. But mm. if there's something missing or if it really just doesn't and cannot achieve or grow to get those those that amenity, um, then buyers or people that live there will always sort of have their eye out, you know. When yeah, where can I go them. and when yeah. can I go? Yeah, yeah. And we're talking about things, the sort of amenities that we're talking about, are, you know, parks and recreation. There, there are certain pockets around Brisbane that are on the creeks that run out to the um, to the major river and up to the ocean. And they've been beautified over the last 15 years to be incredibly beautiful bike tracks and walking tracks. And to be close to those things is an amenity, uh, you know, that recreational side mm -hmm. of things that Brisbaneites love. Um, cafes, it, it's, if, if, the, if you're in an area that just doesn't have that kind of cafe lifestyle precinct, or an ability to get there easily, um, that can be quite a turn-off to people. It, it, it means that they're going to maybe live there but always be going somewhere else and always be aspirational to be somewhere else. Um, the retail strips, the boutique sort of lifestyle areas, also schools, and schools are becoming far and far more important to people. And, and sometimes when you're a first-home buyer, you don't necessarily think that far ahead, <laughs> but it actually does have an impact on price. So even if you're not looking for it for yourself, you actually have to think about in the greater scheme of things, when you're trying to price a property or evaluate a property for purchase, which school catchment it is, is it in? Because if it's in a certain school catchment, it may cost more than if it's in a different school catchment and your resale value will be affected as well. So you don't want to pay the wrong price going in and the wrong, you know, then the, get the outcome that's wrong at the other end of things. I will um, say one thing about school catchments though, which is a bit of a tricky thing. And so I always cut counsel our clients and not get too hung up on them it's important to understand absolutely it's really super important to understand because certain particularly in suburb in sydney certain areas that primary schools are more of an issue than the high schools mm. right and that is so for instance in inner sydney the primary schools are a real issue because a lot of people end up sending their kids or 
private high school. So they're not too worried about the local high school, but they are worried about the primary school. And then in, in like the Upper North Shore in Sydney, that's an area where the, the public high schools, a lot of selective schools, and there's a real issue with those catchments. People do will pay more money to be on one side of the street than the other. But the big risk, and this is where you don't want to be on the edge of a catchment area because they change. If that school population swells, they will reduce the size of the catchment area. And if you bought in well before your kid goes to school, <laughs> or if you bought in even thinking, I'm buying on this side of the street because it's going to be worth more in time, and then you actually find the boundaries have moved by the time you sell. So you just you do need to understand that there are some um, some risks associated. You know, I love to talk about risks. Uh, <laughs> the risks is associated with that but 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 you know, it's such a good point because I actually have friends who that exact thing happened ah. they bought in school catchment for a very popular school but when they went to sell our outside school catchment now it didn't matter to them because their children were already in the school mm. but when they went to sell uh, and it was an, uh, four years later they got about the same money as what they paid Ooh. because the catchment like even though the, the market had increased in the suburb They'd paid a catchment price and they sold on on an outer catchment price. So it's it's a really good point and a and a case in in practice. Yeah. Um, health as well. And now look, you, you know, as first home buyers, you're probably not so focused on health. Um, but certainly it's something to be aware of. You want to have good facilities available to you, should you need them. Hopefully you don't need them too badly. Too early. <laughs> too early. But you know, if your parents can't live with you. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go down that path. <laughs> and, and what we're talking about here, though, is effectively the impact of socioeconomics on an area, right? So socioeconomics uh, is something that we talked about in the, in the Where to Buy workshop or the, for investors, right? Because socioeconomics are basically the combination of, like, financial um, sort of social Oh, social education, class. Income. I don't want to use the word class, but but it's not. It's sort of you know, it's it's about educational standards, standard of um, employment, um, level of income, um, who owns their own home versus doesn't. It's 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 a it's a really interesting mix of those sorts of things. Who spends money in the local businesses, and and is the local economy healthy? Um, and this ultimately, you know, kind of all comes into the amenity and overall de desirability of the mm. area. So I guess that's that socioeconomics is actually the broader study of people in an area. Yeah. And it is, it's, it'll go back to that desirability of people to A, move there, B, spend their money buying there, and mm. C, stay there. And those sorts of factors are what's so important to shore up and and, and give you sustainable, or it's all the ingredients for sustainable capital growth in an area. So you can feel comfortable if you either buy an investment or if it's your first home that you've actually got yourself in a good area that's going to go up, right? Mm. And we were talking about- Long-term, um, not just as a little spike. Exactly, yeah. We talk you, about the, the, the Vs in growth. And if you have Vs, it's not sustainable long-term growth. But if you have a bit more of a steady path of, of growth, it's because people want to be there and they keep pushing into the area consistently that's exactly right so when the market slows down because it will i mean it's not going to be on the rise forever when it slows down you want to be in an area where other people will still want to be there you know like mm. all the other sort of it you know the, the iffy suburbs they'll they'll give those a wide berth uh, and then within those areas of course it's the type of property that you buy but that's the topic for a whole other podcast <laughs> episode but what i find so much to share 
so much to share. What I find interesting is the amount of people that say, oh, I'm not going to buy in a good suburb because that's already had their growth. And I'm like, <laughs> what? That, did you think that was a one-off? And that is very much that that short-term thinking mm. that sort of applies that logic. And it seems really logical because you they're trying to find a hotspot that's going to take off, right? And they go, well, you know, I'll go back to Balmain only because that's obviously just, my, you know, my neighbourhood. But, you know, Balmain gentrified back in the sort of 80s and 90s, right? So people could argue, well, it took, it took off then. But it's had huge, consistent, enormous growth ever since then. There's been ups mm. and downs, you know, as the market has gone sort of a bit up and down. We've had some, some real runs and then some, some slow patches. But over time, it's been extraordinarily good in terms of capital growth. And so to, to assume that just because it had its gentrification push, you know, a few decades ago, that that's it, just hang, it, hang up its boots, it's never going to do well, it's sort of silly. Whereas what they're doing is betting on another area, having just that one-off fast sprint. And we talk about this in the street. Well, actually what they're betting on is that that has the sprint, but then it maintains the longevity. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that's the risk is you can have the sprint, but if you have the sprint, you have to know when to time your exit. Well, yes, because if you're looking at somewhere that's just got a one-off and then it doesn't have those fundamentals to sustain mm. it, absolutely you've got to time your exit. Because you've got to make sure you're not on the downhill run when it when the puff goes out of that market and everyone looks for the next big thing. Exactly. Um, it's, it's such a you know, it's such a good point because it's the compounding nature of the capital growth that actually makes property return so much to people over the long term. That is a whole nother topic and <laughs> let's not go there right now. But Now, I'm going to say, because obviously in these podcasts, we do have a bit of a fair, free-ranging um, conversations about these sorts of things. And we hope that we actually get your interest peaked because we want you to know that these things are important. You know, mm. if you grasp these concepts and actually apply them, you will set yourself up way better financially than if you don't, if you just sort of go for luck, you know. And so throw the dart at the dartboard. And hope. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> there's there's it is much easier to make a mistake than it is to actually uh luck it and do it right. So what we are talking about here is the fact we've created this workshop that we ran last night, we actually created a tutorial for you. So you can actually download this for only $39 and it will step you through in a way more detailed way than what we're saying here, a way to look at choosing a location, a way to go through the important pieces of data that you need to look at and the clues that you get to actually what the behaviour of buyers are, the behaviour of owners, the behaviour of tenants uh, in these areas and how to get that information, how to actually build up a picture of, of suburbs, whether you're going to live in it or whether you're going to invest in it, because this is so important for you so you don't blow your hard-earned deposit, your hard-saved deposit. So true. So summing it up, Veronica, we have talked a little bit about data and how important it is in getting a little bit of a helicopter view, but it cannot be the only way that you make decisions about how to choose an area. So where to buy for investors, for you know people buying their first home, it, it can't be based just on the factors of, of median house prices or just on the factors of demographics or just on the factors of, of any statistic that you can pull out incomes, owner-occupier ratios, these, these things in and of themselves are not going to give you a full picture because you need to overlay the, the, the behavioural aspects of people. What are they doing? What do they like? Are the things that they like there, are they, are they there? Aspirational suburbs always have buyers wanting to go there, even in a soft market. 
people will want to go to these suburbs. You don't want to buy in a suburb where the minute residents can afford to, they leave. Nobody actually chooses to be there. They only buy there because it's a stepping stone to somewhere else. So be really, really cautious about taking this the wrong stepping stone um, that only invites other investors, first-time investors and first-time buyers into the area. And, and a lot of those areas are, you know, house and land packages or a large amount of supply or things that are easy to get into. You know, one of one of our um, Home Buyer Academy principles, if it's easy to buy, it's hard to sell. Now, get your, wrap your head around that because that is a fundamental in any market. Yeah, it's so true. And just think, and the, and on the flip side of that is if things are competitive, it's really difficult to buy the property because not because the market's competitive, but because it's a really good property and people want it, then potentially it's got the elements in place that will make it desirable down the track when you go to sell it as well because that's the, ultimately it's the magic. That's the actual total, you know, really uncomplicated secret of capital growth, who your future buyer is and will they fight for it. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Now we'll put the link to that um, tutorial in the show notes and we'll look forward to seeing you in the next episode. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.